Today's episode is sponsored by Panacea Financial. Panacea is a new financial services company that's making banking better for doctors. And the story behind Panacea, it's interesting, is founded by doctors who, when they were residents, were rejected for loans by traditional banks. And, you know, doctors have a unique financial life cycle that doesn't fit the mold of normal financial calculators. And frankly, traditional banks don't always understand the acute needs of physicians. And that's putting it lightly. Now, last time I told you about Panacea's PRN personal loan with no cosigner, turn around in as little as 24 hours. So you've got access to money as you need it, when you need it. And you know, there's many other great banking amenities at Panacea. But when I was looking through their services and speaking to the founder, the one that really struck me was and is the transparent medical student loan refinance. Now, if you've done this at other places, there's a good chance that you've seen some kind of maximal amount you can refi. You've seen fees. You've seen that your loan might get sold. You may need a cosigner and the customer service can be suboptimal to say the least. You may have seen all of those things. Panacea gets it and then strives to be totally the opposite. Complete transparency. There are four fixed rates depending on your repayment time. I mean, the rates are right there on the website. I'm looking at them right now. They're out in the open. There's no guessing. There's no waste of time on the pre-application. And then you find your rate. What what kind of witchcraft is that? There's no fee, no max, and they're not going to sell your loan. And it's customer service 24-7, just like you are 24-7. If you're ready to declare independence from traditional banks, go to panaceafinancial.com today. Panacea Financial is a division of Sona Bank, member FDIC. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, my friends. Welcome back. You know what? We're just going to get into it here. Let me warn you in advance that the beginning of this pod, and you've seen the title, Stress Inoculation, but the beginning of this first few minutes, bit graphic in their description. So if you are, you know, perhaps in the car listening with your little ones, might be time to switch channels, at least for the beginning. So there we go. Proviso has been provided. And Proviso number two is that even though this is going to be a discussion centered in the medical realm, what we talk about today is by no means limited to that area. It's applicable to any line of work. All right. Let me first pull in a little dramatic music. Yep. We're going to go there. We're going to do that. There it is. And now let me introduce you to emergency physician, Jason Hine, who found himself in a very very stressful situation. This is like 10 or 11 at night. Patient came in having covered himself in gasoline and lit himself on fire. Lit himself on fire. Self-immolation. And who Jason's talking about is a patient that we'll call Steve. Steve is a middle-aged man who presented following a suicide attempt to a tiny hospital in a remote an underserved area where Jason was moonlighting. And of course, there's so many horrible things about this with the psychosocial aspect, the humanistic aspect. But when we focus in on the medical 
treatment, which is what you've got to do when you're the physician caring for the patient, a case of immolation is extremely challenging, even when you have backup and backup on your backup. But for Jason, at this time, he was his backup. Not the place you want to have that patient, right? Face, neck, and chest were all badly burned, and it was clear that Steve was going to need his airway secured. So Jason opened Steve's mouth to intubate him, and it was bad in there. It was swollen, burned, charred, too swollen, in fact, for even the smallest tube to pass into the trachea despite multiple attempts at it. Jason knew he was going to have to cut open Steve's neck to secure an airway, a cricothyrotomy. Recognizing that that wasn't going to be a tube from above, I had to do a crike in a place that was the worst environment for doing so. As in, there was no other help to be had. If he couldn't complete the procedure, Steve would die in short order. But the procedure of a cricothyrotomy is a HALO, H-A-L-O, a high acuity, low opportunity procedure. Most emergency physicians will only do a handful of these, if that, in their entire career. And when you do them, chances are you're going to feel stressed. Not something you want to fumble around in doing, but is going to be incredibly stressful when it happens. And so in this environment, with a crashing patient, not able to get a uh, intubation, a, a tube into the, from above through the mouth, I had to put that tube into the windpipe from the front of the neck. And in prepping for that, I saw that black. I saw the rim coming into my vision from the periphery and starting to get that tunnel. The tunnel's closing in. Heart is beating. Panic is soon to take over. It's time to sink or swim. You know, there's a lot of ways through that. People, Some people have mantras. Some people have specific things they say. You know, you've got this. You've done this 100 times. I just did box breathing in that circumstance. Three seconds in, hold. Three seconds out, hold. Three rounds of that, and that black receded. Calming down, parasympathetic, a treatment, a remedy for the stress that reached extremely high levels, and this remedy can get you back to a functional place. And the procedure went well. Steve survived and was transferred to another hospital. But what if you didn't have to treat that stress each time it came up, or at least could treat it less, have less stress, less physiologic activation? Things like simulation can help, but there is only so much verisimilitude that you can get there. It is hard to truly and fully replicate the stress of the moment. In practicing how to do these procedures, that's very hard to replicate, right? You need to, <laughs> I can't be like, hey, I'm going to cover you in gasoline and light you on fire now so I can practice this. Uh, you can't recreate that environment, You, but you do have to inoculate stress. One, so that you perform well, so that you can perform in a similar way as to when it's happening in real life. But we actually know as well, stress is a memory aid. When you learn under stress, that memory sinks better. It sinks deeper. It holds more firmly. So using it for that reason as well. Locking it in by learning under stress. Great. But what we're going to talk about today is inoculating for stress. And the methods that Jason is going to discuss, they are by no means the only ways to do this. I mean, there are 
myriad techniques for this, books, libraries written on it. But what we're going to talk about are things that anyone can do with what you easily have at hand. There's three ways. There's three ways in my mind to inoculate stress when you have to perform something in a stressful environment. The first one is to time yourself. So if I, the example I gave you, if I came up to you right now, Rob, and said, your shoe's untied, pull out a stopwatch and say, go time it and clicked it, man, it's going to, you're going to fumble a little <laughs> bit, right? Yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> even, even you say that I started to get a little anxious, you know, I started yeah, thinking, right. oh my God, he's going to be timing me. You're going to do the double bunny ears. How are you going to do it? The loop soup pill. I mean, it's, it's amazing what a, what a hack that is for stress inoculation. Cause you think, oh, what's the consequence if I don't tie my shoe in this actual time, but you just mm-hmm. get you just get into it. It just trigger. It must trigger the amygdala. It's something deep inside of us. Maybe it's our, our, the type of people that we are that work in these environments as well that want to perform, but it works. So take a stopwatch out, time yourself. So if you're practicing a critical procedure, you're, you're hands-on, you're doing some kind of simulation. I, I think having someone else timing it yeah. is even better than you timing yourself. Yes, absolutely. If you can, and we'll get, we'll get into the idea of working in front of an audience. But so if you, if you don't have access to an audience timing yourself, it's still, if you hit that stopwatch and you say, go, I need to do this by this time, you'll still feel that, right? If you kind of imagine that now working through that procedure, seeing that clock run while you do it, the timing in and of itself can create stress. And what you're looking to do is not just do that procedure, do that task quickly, but execute it flawlessly, execute the one micro skill that you're working on well within a specific time frame, And then you can work on chopping time, chopping time, chopping time if you want to or can, but using time to inoculate stress and then also give yourself feedback about how you're doing. So then that's one. The other one is using the other senses we have, right? For me, this is audio. Audio cues are going to be huge in terms of inoculation of stress. And you have to know your person. You have to know your quirks and your things that get you. You know, I'm a parent, so crying babies. Crying babies for me, I'm sitting, I'll be, you know, it's nap time. The kids are in in there and I'll be, you know, reading, trying to do whatever. And if I hear something that's even close to the sound of a crying child, boom, my pulse rate goes up slightly. It happens every day, twice a day, but it still is like, oh, the baby's awake. So knowing that in me, I have audio of crying children and having that in the background when I do the procedure increases my adrenaline level. Other things that work for me, you know, we have um, different, we have telemetry, that beeping on the monitor that you'll see in all of these classic shows about, you know, medicine, which are generally usually have the wrong rhythm or something like that. But a specific type of beep, 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 <laughs> beep going into or anything like that, that works for me. I know what's going on in that telemetry. That raises my heart rate. I've lived in that environment enough to know that equals badness. So having that audio cue raises my stress. It's funny you mentioned those two things. I would generally have the beep turned off in the resuscitation bay. I'd turn them off too. Yeah, because like, oh, you know, I don't want that extra stress. And even when you're, you've heard it thousands of times, it's still, it still gets you. And the crying baby, boy, I I wish I had known that so long ago (laughs) because (laughs) resuscitating a neonate, a child in their first month of life, for anything. Sometimes they're floppy. They're so sick that they can't cry, but often they are crying. They are crying. And there's a very particular cry to that neonate. And 
you know, whatever you have to do, it's so tiny, it's so micro. And that cry just adds that extra stress to it because then that cry also makes you think of like what the stakes are oh, yeah. in that environment. And that, you know, resuscitating neonates isn't something that you do every day or every week or maybe even every year. And I would think that running through a resuscitate, even running through a resuscitation algorithm with that crying in the background would just add such an incredible level of locking it in. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's going to freak you out at first. And that's the idea, right? Is to just repeatedly do it with that external stress, have a stopwatch, you have that, because all of those things are there in real life. Time is of the essence. That baby is crying. My, my hair is standing on end just oh, yeah, thinking my about it. Sweaty. <laughs> just talking. You don't want to do it to the point that it breaks you, you know, like having a sparring partner in boxing. You don't want them to punch you as, as hard as you can in the face, <laughs> but you know, you want, you want to see what it actually feels like in the real moment so that, you know, you're kind of recreating the fight. Like you said, you'll never get to that moment again. You'll never get to the exact level of adrenaline, but if you can get used to functioning at 50%, 60% of what that might be like in real life, that's like sparring, right? And that's what we're trying to do. Okay, so we've got timing it. We've got adding in some external cue that, you know, will induce stress, will, in, you know, excite your amygdala, release catecholamines or, or whatever, wherever your stress response is coming from. What's my third one? Performing in front of a crowd, performing in front of an audience of some nature. And there's kind of three people from our world that can do that. It's your peers, people that are colleagues of yours. They can watch you do this procedure. They can, one, inoculate that stress, taking a colleague or coworker and bringing them in and saying, hey, I want you to watch me do this. You've never seen me do this procedure. Watch me do it and give me feedback. For sure, that's going to release catecholamines to increase the adrenaline. Also, the added benefit of helping with deliberate practice because then you get feedback to apply to your next repetition. Absolutely. The few times I did, I did a suturing course with a plastic surgeon. Yes, you could say he lacerated my te my technique, and then each nice. sutures, you know, it was uh, it was so helpful. I would, I think, you know, even having your partners who are really fast at stitching just come in, and and we're obviously getting a little bit out of the stress inoculation. Just having watch, like, oh, let me watch how you do this. Or say you're a realtor, and you're finalizing a contract, just having another one of your partners in there, just kind of watching how it goes and says, oh, I might do X, Y, and Z. A salesman doing a pitch, things like that. Yeah. But you also have to be open to that feedback, right? Deliberate practice has to be part of your path. Yeah. You have to believe in that. So having someone watch you, having your partners watch you in real time. Now, real time is, that's actually the real arena, but having your partners watch you in a simulation. Yes, exactly. Having colleagues, coworkers do it, having your, your family. If you work in a profession like we do, a lot of what we do shouldn't come home. You know, we, we work in a world where talking about what we see day to day is probably not beneficial for the home environment. So I talk superficially about things like that, but work is work and home is home. So when I take a procedure that exists in that world and say, hey, honey, do you mind watching me perform this cricothyrotomy, put this tube in this windpipe? That's stress inoculating for me because she's seeing me in, a, in an element she doesn't generally. That vulnerability, I think, is stressful. Yeah, I think it's really you're being judged and that mm. you think, even though you're really not, maybe you are a little bit, but it's just your interpretation of it and your own 
native insecurity of mm-hmm. like, oh, they're what are they going to think of me? Are they going to judge me? I can remember any time I was ever in a sim, any sim ever, sweating and sweating some more. It's good. That's what we want to do because, again, when we have to do that in reality, we're sweating. Our adrenaline's high. Our catecholamines are full throttle. So trying to recreate that, uh, that's the goal. So And then the, the sort of third element of that to go over them all, we talked about timed. We talked about audio cues. And then within crowd or audience, I see there being three, if you have them at your disposal. There's the peers, your coworkers, colleagues. There's family. And then if you work in an environment where there are learners, that's the third way. And this one has awesome benefits in so many regards. So in medicine, obviously, we have residents, we have med students approaching them and saying, I need to practice doing this procedure. I want you to watch me do it and give me feedback on where I'm doing it poorly. One, you're admitting that wow. you're infallible. Wow. Yeah. Powerful. Saying, I am imperfect. That he, that need, should be happening more in medicine and probably globally, but saying, I have flaws. I need you to see them and tell me them so I can work on them. Taking that infallibility you know, facade away is huge. And then we talk all the time in medicine about being lifelong learners, but where, rarely do we actually put that in action or show, show them how we do that. So doing that, putting it into reality with a learner, you're breaking down the barriers. You're, you're reversing that learner, tra- you know, teacher-learner dichotomy that we've built. You're smashing down so many walls and creating a really good bond with them. And yeah, stressful, right? Having a learner watch you do something, see your imperfections, give you feedback feedback on those imperfections, great way to inoculate stress. What I love about this is that I think when the conversation is stress inoculation or you know high fidelity simulation, it's simulation. So, okay, you need to be in a simulation lab, you need to be reproducing everything. And that actually is really awesome. But there's so many other low fidelity things to help inoculate against stress that there doesn't have to be that barrier of having the lab or going to the lab or scheduling the lab. There's many ways to do it that are just right in your pocket. I don't know why I always kind of, when you went into the sim center, it was like pretend land, right? You, while it was stressful and we talked about just being watched and being judged and being assessed is stressful. They never they never mirrored a real patient to me. They never necessarily seemed all that real because I knew I was in a simulated world. But in these examples that we're talking about, you can take this to your life. You can take this to your practice environment and use them in situ, which is going to be so much more powerful. When you're in the moment and you're getting that tunnel vision, you know, you're you're talking about doing box breathing and, you know, we we had an episode many months ago called the art of breathing talking about how to get parasympathetic versus sympathetic and there's all sorts of different breathing techniques that you can do and i personally found those really helpful another thing i found really helpful in the moment was if i was overwhelmed by the entire spectrum of what was going on talk about somebody who self-ignited right i mean that's just there's a lot to that there's a lot to think about things are moving quickly There's many aspects of critical care that are happening, but you just have to do this little thing. You have to do this one thing was to incrementalize and Mm -hmm. break things down into tiny, tiny, tiny micro steps. And you have to know the whole course to do this. You have to know exactly what the end looks like, but to say, okay, my only next step is this. You're prepared for all of them, but the Mm -hmm. only thing that matters is, you know, I need to 
I need to prepare the neck this way. I need to inject this this way. I need to use my scalpel to cut this way. I need to put my hand that way. I need to hold. And so breaking that down, I found help shut out external noise, help shut out extraneous. It, it would almost be negative self-talk. Yeah, I think of that similarly and probably just much more um, juvenile. I think <laughs> of all of these procedures as Lego castles. You can't build a Lego castle without putting down each brick. So that's the way that I would take that same exact thought and just make it something that's, you know, I can visualize in my mind. I can't put a crike in until I make that first vertical incision. And each thing that we do has these steps. You have to know what the castle looks like to put down each block, but it can't be built without those blocks going in order. Oh, but yours is way better. <laughs> the, oh, the, thanks. <laughs> I love, uh, be, the, be the castle. Be the Lego, Jason. Be the Lego castle. Be the Lego castle. All right. Thanks so much, Jason. Oh, pleasure. Thanks, man. And that is going to wrap it up for today. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. And when you're there, you can, believe it or not, sign up for our newsletter. You can subscribe to Stimulus in pretty much any podcatcher you want. Anyone that's out there, if it happens to be iTunes or use the Apple Podcast app, take a minute, throw down a reviewer rating. I read all the reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.